Welcome to a special episode of Affable Chat. Normally, on this podcast, we talk about movies, but today is an exception. Today, we are talking about a book, but not just any book. We are talking about David Foster Wallace's opus, Infinite Jest. First of all, of the two of us, only I have read it. Benjamin did a bunch of research about the author, David Foster Wallace, and will be contributing by providing useful context. But we are mostly going to focus on the book itself and how I felt about it. The name of the book is Infinite Jest. It is an introspective American black comedy. The author is David Foster Wallace. I read this book through Audible using two different books because the first book did not include the end notes. And maybe this is a good time to explain something about this book, which is that it contains uh, 388 endnotes, uh, which are referenced throughout the 1,088 pages um, inside of the original text. When uh, when you're reading the book, like actually reading it, you have to flip from one side to the other. Some people say that's like a reference to tennis, so you're moving from one side of the book to the other side of the book. But for the audio audiobook version, that's not really an option. At the beginning of the audiobook, it actually says we didn't include the endnotes. Um, and I was like, what? Oh, and he even says, fans of David Foster Wallace know how important the endnotes are. And so I was like, what? How am I supposed to read this book? Luckily, there's another version of the book read by the same person. I think it's just split into pieces um, that contains a the endnotes as a separate audio book. So I had to download two different books to read this book. And I was constantly switching between the two of them. Um, meaning I was pausing one and then going back to the other one and then going back to the other one and pausing that one and constantly rewinding to make sure I didn't miss anything. Wow. Um, it was frustrating to say the least. It definitely kept me more engaged, I think, than I probably would have been otherwise. But while you're driving, trying to switch between uh, audio <laughs> things is difficult. So um, endnotes are different from footnotes, being that endnotes are at the end and footnotes are at the bottom of the page. Essentially, yes. That's that's really the only difference. Although some of the foot, some of the end notes contain end notes in themselves, which I think take the form of footnotes. Again, I don't actually have the physical text in front of me, so I can't tell you specifically. My but God. I'm pretty sure that's how that works. Okay. Well, if we're tackling <laughs> this right now, I do want to play a audio segment. A note for the listener. This is David Foster Wallace. I sometimes use footnotes in these essays, which presents kind of a nasty problem for an audio book. Where do the footnotes go? There is no bottom of the page in an audiobook, obviously. So here's a solution. Footnotes are usually in a smaller font than the main text. Time Warner's audio director feels that a workable equivalent of two different fonts here could be two different sounds for my voice. So when my voice sounds the way you're hearing it now, I'm reading from the main text. And when my voice sounds like this, I'm reading a footnote. The footnote sound is a little smaller, but that's why they're audio footnotes. If you hate the whole idea, please know that it's not my fault. I love that little <laughs> nice bit. Little hedging his bets there. So yeah. this was for what, Consider the Lobster? That's is that right. It, yeah, it one of his essays for the collection of essays where he went and did something that was supposedly, I think the, the collection is called uh, Supposedly Fun Thing I'll Never Do Again. And it's right. him experiencing something fun and then moaning about it in an essay. <laughs> right. So the, how he did it here, I think, is... Uh, or for that audiobook, I like a lot more than the way that they did it for Infinite Jest. I, I enjoyed it. it. It honestly, 
So I've read uh, also Mr. Squishy, which is one of his essays in the collection of essays called Oblivion, and that also has footnotes. I find that his footnotes add some value most of the time, especially when they kind of pull you in a completely uh, random direction, but it's kind of like an interesting tidbit or a snarky comment that he's oh, yeah, appending. Yeah. The, they're, they're absolutely essential to understanding the book. Even though they're like kind of just, sometimes they're just little factoids, sometimes they're, they're references to, a lot of times when he mentions drugs in Infinite Jest, he will put a, a, uh, an end note there to say who the manufacturer of the drug is and give you some details there. Um, but there's entire sections that are just conversations between important characters in the book that you would be completely missing um, if you didn't have those end notes. It's not just like a bibliography. It's an essential part of the reading experience. So the fact that they thought it was okay to exclude them from the one version of it is baffling to me <laughs> um, and and frustrating for me to read it. Um, the, old, the one good thing I say about having two different files is that you get the choice of when to, to read the footnote, which is how it works in a normal story, right? You can finish the, you can finish the sentence or you can... Um, interrupt the sentence and then go back and reread that first part of the sentence so it gives you that kind of freedom um and it does keep you more engaged because you're constantly switching um and the way that they referenced uh uh end notes in the audiobook is they had a female voice reading the um footnote or the end note numbers which was fascinating to me because all I could picture is some person that they brought in for one day just to read the numbers one through 388. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, um, I, the way that you experience the end notes sounds particularly frustrating and tedious, but I also imagine it's somewhat tedious to have to flip to the back of the book every time you want to read the end notes because footnotes are at the bottom of the page and i find that a little bit tedious as well especially when i'm in the middle of these gigantic page long sentences that are rambling on about complex issues and then i stop mid sentence to read a different sentence at the bottom of the page i it can sometimes i can get lost in that and i guess maybe that's you know a personal problem but at the same time um it, you know when it happens every page or uh multiple times in one page i i sometimes like i think there's a certain part of that that makes me uh lose uh, a little bit of momentum so sure. I, I don't know it's an it's an interesting choice with david foster wallace it is, and I think um, it speaks to a, a couple things. First of all, the way that David Foster Wallace thinks, but I also think that it's emblematic of how a lot of people think. Um, because when you are explaining something, oftentimes that thing will lead you to another thing. And so this is a way of incorporating our natural inclination to go on tangents into a story, which makes it feel more real or like more human in a way, um, which I really, I really appreciate that element um, of it. But uh, I mean, lots of other authors have written books and don't have the same problem. So I don't know why he decides to solve it in a way that nobody else has solved it. Um, but I, I also feel like it's just a, it gives this unique style to it that is, um, it makes it special, um, even if it is kind of annoying and uh, difficult to go through. I totally agree. It's a David Foster Wallace thing at this point, like uh, especially because of all the. This is a classic infinite jest interview question for for David yeah. Foster Wallace. Everyone asking about the end notes, and at, at a certain point, it's just it's a stylistic choice. It was something he wanted to do, and he's unapologetically going to utilize it to the degree that he did in this book. Right. 
And I think when you're writing too, you don't uh, you often don't write linearly. So when you um you when you have a page in front of you, you can write on any part of the page. You can write the middle, you can write the beginning, or write the end, or you can write a tangent in between. And so a page gives you the freedom to move in time necessarily inside this inside of the story um, and the end notes give you another dimension of that because you're no longer linearly attached to the story you're moving in a new dimension um, anyway we've harped on this too long now we've got a lot of other things to get yes through. okay so things i liked about this book um, it has a very unique use of words i have a bunch of examples for that later uh, it's incredibly detailed very well fleshed out characters that feel so real and you feel important while you're reading it, which is, uh, you know, that's a pro. It's a very large <laughs> book. So there you go. <laughs> Proud of you um, for reading it. Thank you. Uh, cons, stuff I didn't like. It's long. It's too long. It, it is ridiculously long. It, there's, not, there's not really a plot. There's nothing that really happens. It's inconsistent in its shifting perspectives, which I found extremely pr um, frustrating. It's difficult to read and extremely limited in its worldview. Um, I think that uh, David Foster Wallace, uh, it, people claim that he's very prescient or that he has um, an idea, like ability to drill deep into what the heart of American values are or something. I think to a certain extent that's true, but I think it's mostly due to his upper class white American um, upbringing that he's really touching to the deep deepness to. And I personally don't find that as valuable um, because I spend a lot of time on myself being of a similar background uh training myself to believe that my own perspective is not as valuable um as i believe it is i uh, i want other i think my opinions and stuff are largely influenced by other people which um is where that real value comes from my own thoughts um putting a lot of effort and uh uh what like weight on my own thoughts i don't think is really that valuable because I don't think of myself as being as perceptive as I want other people to be. I, I prefer to be more open-minded than believe that I am the be-all end-all for this. But that being said, you're going to listen to my thoughts about this whole book. So, <laughs> Okay, yeah. Um, okay, well, I think that's good enough. Let's, uh, let's hear it. Okay, so let me start off by saying that media criticism for me is really just a hobby. I know there's a ton of this book that I missed. I'm not an academic. I've only listened to the book once. And I think that listening to it is the inferior way to experience it. And so I do not have the same experience that so many other fans have had. So if you've read this book and you think I'm totally wrong, first of all, I probably am. And second of all, please tell me about it right into the show and tell me I'm wrong. That being said, we have been doing this podcast for more than three years now with an episode almost every week during that time. Although I feel underqualified to talk about this book, I have written more than 7,000 words about it. So I think I'm ha I have something valuable to say. Right, right. if, if uh, length is any indication of greatness, <laughs> as, as it, it just it. implies. Yeah, I, think you're, I think you are uh, <laughs> catching on a theme. The, the problem I have with this book is I feel like I swam 50 miles to get to a deserted island and I found no enlightenment along the way. And when I got there, the island was indeed deserted. This podcast is an exercise in trying to solidify my thoughts on the book, but also a desperate plea. If you have read Infinite Jest, I want to know what you think. Even if you're listening to this 10 years after we release it, reach out to me, please. I want to know what others think. I'm desperate. <laughs> if we are... 
if you are hoping for me to come out and say, oh, I like this book or I hated this book, I'm sorry to dis disappoint you. First of all, that's not really the mission of this podcast. And second of all, it's just too much, man. I feel the same way about Infinite Jest as Mike Birbiglia feels about Texas, which I have a quote for right here. It's not to say I dislike Texas entirely. It's such a large thing to dislike. And, uh... <laughs> But that, that week, it felt like Texas just disliked me, and I just kind of disliked Texas back to the point where I developed a small drinking problem, which is, which is very popular in Texas. <laughs> so let me be clear. It is big. It is absurdly big. It is frustratingly big. It is unnecessarily big. Every time I think about this book, I think, why is it so long? There is no good answer. It does not need to be this long. I have never read a book this long, but I have read several series of books that are longer. For example, the Foundation series by Isaac Asimov totals to about 62.5 hours, where this one is about 56 hours. The length itself is not the issue. The issue is it feels long and nothing happens. I feel so unsatisfied. My questions are not answered. Promises are broken. And it has been a, such a slog to realize that. So here's a quote from the book that I believe is unintentionally meta and i want benjamin to read all my quotes so here you go there'd been that first brutal winter night early in the ona and night temporal subsidized era soon after the interlaced dissemination of the man who began to suspect he was made of glass that emerged from the sauna and came to Lyle all slobby bloto and depressed over the fact that even the bastards of the avant-garde journals were complaining that even in his commercially entertaining stuff, Incandenza's fatal Achilles heel was plot. That Incandenza's efforts had no sort of engaging plot, no movement that sucked you in and drew you along. I couldn't say it better myself. That's how I feel about Infinite Jest. No engaging plot, no movement that sucked you in and drew you along. So, let's talk about it. Please. Um, I, well, like, just before you start, <laughs> even after listening to hours of David Foster Wallace talk about this book, I still can't imagine what this book actually is everything <laughs> everything that they talk about is sounds like a whole hodgepodge of different books that are slammed yes. together in a way that's totally incoherent in a way that well i'm about to answer your question together. there so i just want to preface that with like what someone who hasn't read infinite just has heard about it which makes yeah, it yeah. super intriguing to hear what actually is in it there you go well well here's here we go <laughs> Anyway, Infinite Jest is an extremely ambitious piece. This is not a compliment. The whole thing takes such a long time to coalesce around its themes that I am left disoriented and confused for basically the first 10%. It feels like this book is about everything. Life, death, purpose, happiness, addiction, tennis, American football, Alcoholics Anonymous, suicide, media, commercials, America. You name it, this book has something to say about it. As things progress, these themes start to emerge more fully, and I think there's a bunch of interesting things to say. As I've mentioned a couple of times, there really isn't much of a plot. So instead of explaining to you what happens, I will talk extensively about Infinite Jest's characters, and that will give you a good sense of the book, I think. I have 
every intention of spoiling this book, by the way, in both meanings. I'm going to tell you what happens, and I'm also not going to recommend it. And my goal is to make you realize you actually don't want to read it at all. That being said, it's hard to spoil this book. Again, there isn't much of in terms of events. So let me br briefly introduce the characters, and then we can get into the themes and other stuff. Okay, so the majority of the book takes place in Massachusetts in the near future, which I think is around 2007 or 2008. This book was written in 1996, I believe. It follows three groups of people. These people are connected indirectly, and their stories cross over in very interesting ways. The main protagonist is called Hal Incandenza. In the very first scene of the book, Hal is some sort of academic is in some sort of academic interview for the University of Arizona. They are trying to recruit him for their tennis team because Hal is really really good at tennis. However, during the interview, Hal's credibility is questioned and he's asked to defend himself. When he does, his words and movements are horrifying to the deans. They cannot understand him and his gestures seem wild and completely uncontrolled. During this scene, you, the reader, can hear Hal's thoughts and his intended speech. Your only clue that something has gone wrong is the extreme reaction from the deans. In the next scene that you see Hal in, he is taking, he's talking and acting completely normally. Everyone can understand him, and he appears completely ordinary. With more context, you can gather that the very first scene takes place after the events of the rest of the book. This is not an easy thing to determine, however, uh, for several reasons. Um, however, this question, what happens to how, what is going on in that first scene, is the reason I finished this book. It was so compelling, it pushed me to the end to find out what happens to him. I will give you exactly one guess to tell to, uh, to what the book, book reveals, Benjamin. The, what happened to Hal? Like what the answer yeah. to that is? I don't know, yeah. It sounds like he had a stroke. Oh well, uh, I the the real reason is that uh, there is no reason. No no reason is given. <laughs> it, I hate this. It, it is nothing more than a broken promise. And although I have no choice but to accept it, I am never going to forgive Wallace for it. The fact that he went all the way to the end and about in about two hours left, I'm like, oh wait, he's never going to answer this question. He's never going to answer it. Wow. And I'm like. I'm just, I feel scammed and, uh, and uh, upset about it. And, and honestly, I feel justified in my upsetness. Yeah. So, so some more stuff about Hal. Um, he is a 17-year-old tennis, uh, tennis player who attends a special tennis-focused high school called Ennett Field Tennis Academy, or ETA. Hal is one of the best, uh, best of the best in junior tennis. He is ranked sixth in the continent and second at ETA. He's also some kind of genius. When he was young, he used to read the dictionary and memorize etymology. Hal has one vice, which, he, which triggers his arc through the story. He likes to smoke weed by himself in the tunnels under the tennis academy. He does this almost every day. Only a very few people know about it, and he is extremely ashamed of it. Wait, he just Addiction. smokes weed by himself? Yes. It, does he do anything else? Or just sit there? Okay, and... This is really important. I'm about to explain. Okay. Um, addiction is a major theme in Infinite Jest, and it takes many forms. Essentially, anything can become an addiction, even something like pot, which the book acknowledges several times is not normally addictive. The thing about addictions is it's not even the substance that is addictive. It is the ritual of getting high that is the real addiction. So Hal isn't really addicted to smoking weed. He's addicted to sneaking down to the tunnels with all of his equipment and getting high by himself and cleaning up the mess afterward and all of that. Hal ends up being forced to stop smoking for a month, and he's able to keep from ingesting any. And he is able to keep from ingesting anything, but it's a huge hit to his mental well-being. He becomes incredibly depressed and despondent, and he doesn't know how to pull himself out of it. 
so it, yeah it, to answer your question yes that's all he does but it it's it serves a greater purpose it's the ritual itself that's so important to him and I, that will get I'll, I'll get more into that a little bit later but first let's go through the rest of these uh, characters Unless you have some questions right now that I maybe I can no, answer. No, 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 that, that kind of cleared it up. Just sounds kind of lame. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I think it's supposed to, actually. So next on my list of characters is Hal's best friend and drug dealer, who is called Michael Pemulus. Pemulus is pretty entertaining. He's always up to some sort of scheme. He is extremely clever and really, really good at math and game theory. He's also a bit of a sleazeball and a grifter, and few of the adults at ETA like him very much. He is the reason Hal has to quit smoking for a month and actually encourages Hal to move on to harder drugs from weed, uh, which Hal declines. There is this game that the ETA students play called Eschaton, which is a sort of combination of Risk, Model UN, and Precision Tennis. Basically, it's it's a bunch of adjacent, it's played on a bunch of uh, adjacent tennis courts. Every person is a country, and you have different pieces of tennis equipment that are different military targets. There is an elaborate scenario that is dreamed up by the Game Master, which basically pits all of the world's countries against each other in a nuclear war. You use tennis balls as bombs and lob them at different targets to inflict damage. Wow, that sounds <laughs> badass. It's pretty cool. He goes into a lot of detail about how Eschaton works. Pemulus is considered one of the greatest Eschaton players of all time, but he's an upperclassman, so he's retired now. He and Hal are sitting on the sidelines watching the game when an argument breaks out about whether the snow that is falling uh, was actually snow just on the map or on the actual world that they were simulating. Pemulus gets involved, and the whole thing goes to hell, ending with a bunch of people getting pegged with tennis balls and the current game master getting a computer monitor semi-permanently attached to his head. What? Because, <laughs> yes, <laughs> like he's like he's like looking through a monitor. I believe is how it looks. Like he's he's got it like attached to his head, and he's like the monitor. He's like looking through the monitor, and it's like that for several months until they can get it off of him. Oh my god. <laughs> Because of this, Pemulus and Hal get pulled into the administrator's office, and it is implied that if they don't pass a drug test, they will be kicked out of ETA. It's also implied that the administration is looking for an excuse to get rid of Pemulus, and Hal is just caught in the crossfire. Of the All of the different boys and girls at ETA are extreme characters. Each of them has their own little quirks. One boy believes he'll play better if he can learn to play blindfolded, so he wears a blindfold everywhere. One boy in Hal's class wants to be a sports commentator and compulsively dictates every game he watches, which annoys everyone. One boy exclusively wears black. There are a bunch of these guys. Each of them gets a little time in the spotlight. None of them are important. <laughs> that a commentator guy sounds interesting though. Is that how yeah, commentators a, do it? They just every yeah. time they watch sports, every time like, he just like sits there with his fist like up like uh, in his mouth basically just just uh pretending it's a microphone like basically just muttering to himself constantly and everyone's always super annoyed with him. <laughs> um so, uh, Hal's family, the Incandenzas, play major roles in the story, too. Hal's mom, uncle, and older brother all also work at ETA, the school that he goes to. Uh, Hal's mom is a really tall, beautiful Quebecan national who loves to sleep around and has a number of OCD-like uh, attributes. She's obsessed with grammar, for example. She's also the head of academics at ETA. Hal and his siblings call her by the confusing nickname, The Moms. Hmm. <laughs> Okay, yep. Uh, Hal's uncle is called Charles Tavis, or CT. He is the head administrator at ETA. He's extremely open, honest, and tactful in a really weird way. And he might be uh, related to um, Hal's mom, but they're also definitely sleeping together. 
Okay. <laughs> yeah, not clear. Uh, purposely vague. Hal's brother Mario is my favorite character. Mario is disabled in some non-specific way. It's so non-specific, I started to believe that he wasn't really disabled at all. Everyone just treated him that way. But that's not exactly right. He has club feet, a strange gait, and a head that's too big for his body. Here's a description of Mario, which Benjamin will read. Mario's deformity seemed wide-ranging and hard to name. Joel decided he looked like a cross between a puppet and one of the big-headed carnivores from Spielberg's old special effects orgies about reptiles. Mario is older than Hal, but shorter and less developed, so Hal sort of treats him like a younger brother. Everyone loves Mario in the story. He's basically He basically just hangs out around ETA and does odd jobs and gives advice. He's also a pretty talented filmmaker. Mario finds it frustrating to talk to other people because he feels like they never want to talk about anything real. He is naive, but it's almost a choice. He sees the world in a really positive way, I think. Hal also has another brother called Oren. Oren is a professional football player for this book's equivalent of the NFL. His thing, his, his thing, his quirk, is seducing and sleeping with young mothers. He really likes it when they have young children. Oh, I hate him. God. He is disgusting. He calls the women he sleeps with subjects. He has this whole pickup artist thing where he tries all these different tactics to trick women into sleeping with him. Most of his story revolves around him being interviewed for a human interest piece in a magazine while he tries to seduce the reporter. Okay, so I definitely want to hear more about the NFL equivalent in this, uh, but this guy sounds like it's like way to ruin the NFL guy. <laughs> do they have? I don't. Do they have I, team I'm only saying or anything. Uh, yeah, yeah. I can't remember what it is though. Like it has a special name. It's not called the NFL anymore. It's okay. just called some other acronym. Um, but it's it's just American football. There's no there's no real difference. Okay. Um, but do they uh, any yeah. mention of certain teams from the Bay Area and slash or? Uh, um, I don't remember. I, I he, they they mentioned what team he plays for, but it I can't remember what it is. He lives in Phoenix, Arizona, uh, which is I believe where he went to college as well. He went to the same college that Hal was applying for. Okay, and it, oh, okay, so maybe he plays for yeah, I guess the Cardinals. And there's this whole thing be. where he used to play tennis, and then he discovered that he wanted to play football, and he had, he was like a really really good kicker, um, oh, wow. which is why he got re recruited to the team. Which is a little so. bit the opposite of the real or not the real. I'm implying this guy is somehow pseudo David Foster Wallace in the story but <laughs> david foster wallace yeah. famously uh was really good at tennis but he started playing tennis after he played football in high school he right. was the quintessential jock uh from his own description before he discovered how good he was at academics and changed interests and correct me if i'm wrong but i believe uh wallace actually quit football because of the danger of concussions and like head injuries or something along those lines i it was just dangerous i um I actually don't know. I'm sure that's a reason. It's a very common reason not to play it. Um, but that's yeah. also a reason why Oren becomes a kicker because he doesn't actually want to get hit by anything. Um, so being a kicker is a pretty low risk uh, position. And he's like really, really good. I think he 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 cooks like you know 65 year uh, yard field goals or something. So like that yeah, would he's, be he's really, really good. freaking good. That'd be the record yeah. in the NFL. Yeah, I think that is tied for the record. I remember it specifically breaking the record or, okay. or beating the record. Well, at the time so. this book was written, it would have definitely broken the record. So okay, moving on to Hal's father. 
Hal's father is called Dr. J.O. Incandenza, and he does not appear directly in the story. He's a really, really weird dude. Before the events of the book, J.O. kills himself by putting his head in a microwave. Now, you may ask yourself, how does that even work? Like, you can't turn on a microwave when uh, the door is open. Well, he didn't have the door open. He modified the microwave so that he could stick his head inside it and turn it on. Wow. He has all sorts of ventures in his life. He started ETA, for example, the school that Hal uh, goes to. But late in life, he becomes a director of experimental films. The book goes into detail several times about the content of these films, all of which are really high concept and pretty interesting. His most infamous work is a movie called Infinite Jest. Okay, there so are... the so Hal's father made Infinite Jest the movie. You got it. Okay. You got it. There are several infinite jests before the last one was released. J.O. was clearly trying to accomplish something, and it took a lot of effort to make. Not This is like the fifth or sixth version, I think. Not many people know that infinite jest even exists. None of the incandenses make any reference to it. The movie itself, Infinite Jest, has a very interesting characteristic. If you start to watch it, you cannot stop watching it. It is so blissfully entertaining that once you start, you will never want to do anything except watch it over and over and over again. You will piss yourself, forget to eat or drink, take any kind of medicine. Basically, you will lose the will to live. And we'll get more to that later. Okay. Um, it's a, yeah, it's a really interesting, uh, like, plot device. Yeah, I'd heard that concept, and I was like, how has that not been made into a movie yet? Yeah. Like, like, the movie that's, like, even if you don't do the entire story of Infinite Jest, just to take that plot device and make it into something well, the that ring, you watch. the ring is essentially that. Okay. It's you know, uh it's more it's like it kills you 7 days after you watch it. Right. right. And the the thing is re- it's really it's a weird movie. It doesn't like engage you very much. Um well I I think just the yeah. implications of that like having people discuss like how they're not interested in stuff and and uh, like convincing other people to watch it or to not watch it and then the right. government has to put out a statement please do not watch movie which of course everyone that will then watch it. Uh, right. I I like that idea. Um uh, but yeah, continue. Yeah, that'd be really cool if they did any of those things. Um, Next, we are going to move on to our second location, which is the Ennett Halfway House, and it it contains a bunch of other characters. Most of the events that take place at the Ennett House center around Don Gately, a man whose head is so square it is mentioned almost every time he is described. Gately used to be a small-time crook and narcotics addict and had several uh, served several years in prison. He gets sent to Ennett House as part of a court order and has to stay there for a certain amount of time. The house is basically a group home for people who are down in their luck. It is uh, constantly at capacity. Some people are court-ordered to be there, others check themselves in. The main form of rehabilitation takes, uh, the main form rehabilitation takes is through daily meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous. They are essentially the same program. Basically, everyone in the house is required to go to these meetings very regularly. There are tons of these groups in Boston, so they really do have their pick of which ones they want to go to. And I don't know if you uh, heard this, but David Foster Wallace actually went to real life Boston AA meetings to yeah. prepare for this part of the book. To that do doesn't surprise this. me. Um, this book is very pro AA, um, and I and I think it's one of its stronger attributes. So Don Gately hates AA. He thinks the whole thing is whack and stupid. He hates the old guys that swear by it. He hates the new people that show up without a clue. And he hates their cliches that they constantly espouse. Stuff like, easy does it, one day at a time, just keep coming. He finds it all is insufferable. But after a few months, to his utter astonishment, Gately finds that it's working. 
He is no longer, he no longer feels the urge to get high like he used to. It has faded and become less prominent. So then he becomes a staunch believer. He starts encouraging the new people and listening to the old people. He gets even gets a job at the halfway house as live-in staff, meaning that he works with the administrators to keep things running. He runs errands, cooks food, and does other stuff. After about a year, I think, a new person shows up at Anna House. Her name is Joelle Van Dien. She, uh, or Van Dyne, I think. She uh, constantly wears a veil that hides her face. She claims to be horribly deformed. That is the nature of her addiction. She is a part of a group called the UHID, which preaches it is good to wear a veil and hide your deformity. Because, it, because what it does is it forces you to confront it and for those around you to acknowledge it. It's weird. It, the book is full of these little ironic things. It, it, like... Imagine if you met someone who was deformed, right? You would want to treat them normally so you would pretend that there was nothing wrong with them. But the veil uh, directly addresses that there is something wrong with me and uh, I, I expect you to acknowledge that or, or something, right? Which is so weird, right? Because it's like by hiding the thing, suddenly it becomes I some, see. something you can talk about, whereas before nobody wants to address it. Um, so, it, yeah, it, I don't know. It has it's all these kind of twisty things to it. Um, it's very common in this book. Anyway, you, the reader, already know Joelle by the time she shows up at Anna House. She is Oren's ex-girlfriend. Um, she's also the star of Infinite Jest. When Oren knew her, she was incredibly attractive, like absurdly so. She was so attractive that boys were scared of her in high school, and people became obsessed with her after a single glance. Even her own father admits that he is sexually attracted to her. It's really fucking weird. I hate this whole element of this book. Uh, it's such like a put women on a put women on a pedestal type uh, thing. I uh, agree with just, that. I I the father thing's fucking weird, but like oh, man. I it, also, it gets so weird. But I mean, this makes sense that this impossibly attractive woman would be the star of the impossibly watchable right. movie. And, and it may even be that one caused the other in a way. Sure. Um, so uh, basically, uh, Joel and uh, the patriarch in Condensa, uh, James, J.O. in Condensa, they become really close and um, do a bunch of films together. She has a bunch of different personas. One of them is called Madam Psychosis, where she is like a radio um, presenter, and she has this really, really weird show that Mario really likes. Um, and uh, everyone like really is like really seduced by her voice over the radio. It's it's very it's very absurd. Um, but she, uh, it, it's implied that her and uh, Jo were really close, uh, but that they but they constantly claim that they never slept together, but no one really believes that. Um, but like you kind of get the sense that um, J.O. and Condensa is, is kind of more asexual, uh, which is also really weird because his wife is like really horny, <laughs> like she's sleeping with everyone. So uh, I don't know. It's um, it's kind of weird, um, but that that's kind of her. She's an interesting character. I like her as a character. I don't like the way that she's treated in this book at all. Um, so jo jo Joel and Gately become close. Relationships between residents of the halfway house is strictly forbidden, so they keep their distance, but they are both clearly attracted to each other. 
There's another person in a house that's worth mentioning. Randy Lentz is a cocaine addict who starts to experiment with killing animals. These scenes are just as descriptive and slow as the rest of the book, and it makes them horrifying. I hate it so much. He brutally kills cats and dogs that he comes across, even ones that are in people's yards. This backfires when he kills someone's dog, and a bunch of Canadians chase him all the way back to Ennett House. There, Don Gately defends Lentz, not knowing why these guys are after him. Gately kills at least one of them, maybe two, and gets shot himself. For the rest of the book, he is in the hospital. While wow. in the hospital, Gately faces a tough dilemma. He refuses to take any potent painkillers pain because he has sworn them off. He wants to remain clean, but the gunshot wound is horrifically painful. He is visited by a bunch of people from Ennett House who tell him weird stories about themselves. He can't stop them because he has tubes in his throat. And he's also viewed, and he's also visited by J.O. Incandenza's ghost. He has no idea who he is, and the ghost has some really weird stuff to tell him. Anyway, that's Gates Gately, basically. Wow, what an absurd existence! Um, I, <laughs> so I just want to—I kind of want to circle back to the the, yeah. the the animal killing thing because I felt like this was something that came up multiple times in the writings of David Foster Wallace is his ability to drill deeply into a specific subject and almost show off how much of a galaxy brain he is about this obscure topic yeah so like for in uh, uh mr squishy one of the things is like i'm spending pages learning about manufacturing techniques for you know uh mass-produced confections uh for this uh you know snack company i don't give a fuck but i know but <laughs> I, this is all concrete stuff. Like it sounds like David Foster Wallace really knows what he's talking about when it comes to packaging cream stuffed uh, pastries that you buy in a you know sixteen uh, unit pack for the grocery right. store. And I can't imagine going through that. Like the manufacturing was uh, torturous enough <laughs> to hear about literally killing animals. That oh god. Yeah. So the, 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 like imagine that for an entire book, basically, because that's what it is. You know, uh, this um, uh, this book reminded me a lot of Moby Dick because Moby Dick is about eighty percent how to whale and twenty percent like existential like morality stuff, which is why I tried to read the book was for that other twenty percent. I didn't realize it was so much about whaling. This book is mostly about tennis uh, with some other like weird uh, kind of um, uh, like observations about American culture thrown in. Um, so it's just. Yeah, it's really frustrating. So you're either bored out of your mind about what he's describing because you have no idea what the context of it or if he's just showing off, like you said, about something that he knows or um, or you're like extremely horrified by the very detailed murder of innocent animals, uh, which happens more than once, by the way. More than one dog is killed brutally in excruciating detail in this book. And I almost quit the book after both times. I was like, I why should I keep reading this? What what reason do I have to keep reading this? I It doesn't make me feel good. I don't like that I read that. I don't feel better. It didn't add so much to the story that I feel like I really got something out of it. That's why I don't agree that this book is a comedy. I think it's really more of a, it's a really dark, twisted drama, like, uh, first, and then funny later. Uh, any kind of humor that I found I found in it was only in context to the really dark shit that was surrounding it. I was like, oh, that was supposed to be funny, I understand, because it's not quite as horrible as the implications you have in this other section. Um, you know what I mean? So it, it, it's I wouldn't even describe this book as funny normally. Uh, there are certainly moments where I, that were kind of clever, but reading through the whole thing, like you kind of it it gets you to the point where you're like, I uh, 
um, I'm looking for something funny to, to, to happen. I, uh, I'm reaching for something funny to happen. David says in a lot of his interviews that he did not intend for this book to be funny. He said he set out to write a book that would be incredibly sad. And people yes. re- responded in a way he didn't expect by thinking that it's funny. Right. I think that he succeeded in that for sure. It is incredibly sad. It did not. I did not enjoy reading this book. Not at all. Um, another book that it reminded me of is Catch-22. Catch-22 is also is one of my favorite books of all time. It is. It has a bunch of a really, really well-fleshed-out characters. All of them have similar attributes to Infinite Jest in that they have like weird quirks that kind of influence their values. It's, 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 uh, it's interesting. The book is mostly funny, though, even though it's about war, um, but it has some really sad moments. And I think Infinite Jest is the opposite, where it's mostly sad with some tiny fun moments in it. Um, yeah. Okay. So let me get to the third group of people, the third plot that's happening in this story. Um, so so on, just so I'm keeping ahead. track, we had yep. ETA, which is a school in Arizona. No, no, no. Sorry. It's a school in Massachusetts. All of these things are happening in Massachusetts. Oh, right. That's right. Arizona was where the football team was. Yep. Um, yeah. So that's in Massachusetts. AA is definitely in Massachusetts. Yep. And now what's the third place? The third one is kind of all over the place. And I'm going to, I have to give you some more context about this. So, in the events of the book, recently, the United States, Canada, and Mexico all joined to become a unified bloc, some sort of something like the EU. This is called the ONAN, the Organization of North American Nations. Obviously, for some reason, Central America is not included in this uh, thing, which I think is kind of an oversight. I don't really know why they're not included in this conglomeration. This was at the behest of the United States president, Johnny Gentle. Gentle is often described as a famous crooner, which I think means singer. He is also a serious germaphobe and possibly a stooge, which gives him several similarities with our 45th president. One of Gentle's other big ideas was the introduction of subsidized time. This is a system in which American companies gain the right to name a year after one of their products. So instead of 2007, it's the year of the Depend adult undergarment or the year of dairy products from the American heartland. All this really does is disorient the reader and make it more difficult to follow the story, but whatever. No, I like it. I like it. I think this is a hilarious commentary on how we... It's a funny bit, but it's it's not as... It, 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 it's so frustrating. So the very first scene that I mentioned with Hal, right? It's the, the only introduction you get to that is the year of glad, right? And then the very next one is, I think the that you get, it's a similar one, is the year of the Depends adult undergarment. Now, how am I supposed to tell which comes first? Um, well, using that only point? that context. Isn't, the, isn't it supposed to, uh, you're supposed to realize later that that scene happens? Yes, you're supposed to realize later. Okay, well, I'm going to get to that too. That's yeah. that, the realizing later thing really bothers me. Um, the uh, But the, here's the other thing is that every other time he mentions a, he introduces a date um, or introduces a section with a date, uh, he gives the specific date. He gives the month and the day. But that first scene with Hal only says Year of Glad. So mm-hmm. the very last scene that happens chronologically in the book, um, it happens uh, an unspecified amount of time uh, before the very first scene that happens, the very last scene, I guess, chronologically in the book, I guess if that makes sense. Yeah. I, I think I've confused by the way of saying that. The very last scene that happens uh, in the book as you read it uh, happens a unspecified amount of time before the very last scene chronologically in the book. Right. Um, and 
uh, you can guess that since it's like, uh, you know, admissions time is probably like April or May, so it's probably about three or four months. But then there's this huge gap of what happens between that time and this time that causes how to reach this state. Um, and it, it, it doesn't even give you a specific date of when that happened. So you're you're like, I don't even know. Like, I don't know what happens to how I don't even know when this is, you know, even though I have a greater context of the story. Um, yeah, it's still disorienting you, even though you have all the context you, you know, presumably need. Well, I, I think it's one of those, like, the, the confusion is a commentary on the advertising strategy itself, right? Where it's like, it's so intrusive that it's completely counterproductive to name the years this way. Oh, um, yeah. But I, my question is, did David Foster Wallace... Uh, get ad revenue from this bit? <laughs> I don't think so. Probably well, not. Probably not. But I, I, I don't know. You can make the argument that using real brand names really drives home the uh, effect. But I also don't like the idea of Glad getting free advertising in this book, right? Or Depends getting I free advertising. I mean, in do this they book. though? That's the thing, right? Like this is clearly not a good thing. Well, right? it wasn't a good thing in. Um, idiocracy but it was definitely an ad you know it's like oh well let's go to fuddruckers because remember in idiocracy that's where they built on top of fuddruckers or one of the restaurants i don't remember but I, like, yeah i but I there's, there's two ways to look at this right it's like um either you understand the irony of it and so you realize that he's just picking brands to to underscore just how absurd this is i mean depends adult undergarment like the idea of diapers being the uh, adult diapers being the uh you know the sponsor the year of the is year, like yeah. is just so like disgusting and horrifying that it's funny um but the uh and then or you could say oh like i enjoyed this book so much i'm going to buy the products in it um which didn't happen for me either. You know what I mean? Like, right, but I, I'm under the... It's a subliminal thing, right? It's not yeah. that I read Infinite Jest and now I'm going to buy Glad trash bags. It's I need trash bags and Glad has had like an ad that's planted the mm. word Glad in my head so that when I'm in the trash bag aisle, I'm like... I recognize that brand. Let me buy that, right? I mean, that's what we're doing right now. So go buy some Glad. Right. Well, it, because <laughs> the other way to do it is the way that Futurama does it, is they invent fictional brands, brands yeah. to criticize advertising. Like, one of my favorite bits they do is where Fry uh, experiences advertisements in his dreams while he's asleep, and it's an advertisement for light speed underpants. And it's honestly something that made me remember the brand name light speed underpants. And... I don't want to like it would be a much worse uh, ad if they used a real brand because mm. it would have actually been good advertising for them. So I, I think, it, you know, it, it kind of it, this is kind of like a having your cake and eating it, too. If David Foster Wallace is getting paid by these companies. Sure. Otherwise, sure. I feel like he's having his cake and giving it to these corporations. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Uh, it's a. Uh... Uh, it's an interesting idea for sure, but it, it's frustrating for me, the reader, without the larger context um, to understand what's going on when there's already so much about this book that's inscrutable. So, um, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I found it frustrating more than I found it clever. Okay, so soon after unification, there were three North American countries where the three North American countries became much closer. There was some sort of ecological disaster, and it caused a significant portion of New England to become too toxic to live in. This forced a ton of people to migrate to other areas of the country, while the U.S. tried to annex the land and give it to Canada. Of course, Canada didn't really want it uh, and didn't really want to deal with it either. 
Then something else happened. I can't remember the exact details. It was some sort of new technology that ate toxic waste and turned it into fertilizer or something. And they started to use it in an area, but it was so toxic that the entire area became a lush jungle and all sorts of crazy animals started to take over the area. It's basically abandoned by everyone. And now, now nature just wild, runs wild in there. So there's this thing called the Great Concavity, which is this big area of the like northern uh, United States that is basically unlivable because it's like wild rainforest. So before unification, there were all of these different sects in Quebec that wanted to secede from Greater Canada. And then after unification, they wanted to secede from the ONAN. The most dangerous and radical of these groups is called the AFR. They are a bunch of wheelchair-bound Quebecan terrorists bent on the destruction of the ONAN and the death of Johnny Gentle. They have engaged in irregular and psychological warfare with the U.S. for some time. And yes, you did understand that, right? They are, um, we, they'd have, most of them have no legs because they played some sort of game where they raced trains and got their legs cut off uh, when they were kids. Yeah, it's like a hazing ritual. Um, <laughs> wow. Yes, yeah, it's really intense. I mean, yeah, this is really taking a leap from like uh, halfway house drama, you know, addiction uh, to like sci-fi fantasy. I, like I don't uh, know, man. I really don't. <laughs> future world. Yeah. Like, oh, geez. Um, so the this group, the AFRs, they're looking for a master copy of Infinite Jest, which they call the entertainment, so that they can distribute it all over the country and kill lots of people. They have uh, they have a few copies, but not the master, so they have no way of distributing it. What so the, so the, by killing people, like so they understand the nature of the film. Does yes. it always result in the death of the viewer? Yes, it does. Okay. Every time. Okay. Um, it, it's there's there's never been a survivor of it and only people that even know that it exists or what it is can properly handle it because if you even enter a room where it's playing you will die essentially wow yeah it's pretty it's pretty lethal that okay um, that is very lethal i didn't understand that was the level of lethality because no, no, i feel like there's some sort of something interesting about trying to exist after having seen the best entertainment ever right um, well you can't that's the thing Okay, Even if okay. you see a piece of it, you get so sucked into it that, that then you end up watching the whole thing. Um, but like the very first time it's it's uh, it's presented, there's this guy who watches it on his uh, uh, on his TV, and then his wife comes home, and then she gets caught into it, and then um, like and then I think his assistant shows up because he hasn't showed up for work and then he gets sucked into it and then the, another person from the office comes in and then a bunch of police officers come in and they all get sucked into it basically like 22 people end up dying from that very first one coming out and it's because and they're all crowded around the tv like dying basically becoming comatose um and if, it's only after they cut power to the building are they are they able to successfully enter it and, and retrieve the item holy cow i mean uh does is there any sort of like uh pulling someone away from it and then them reacting to having been removed from the you know greatest addiction ever? um i think so i i don't know i can't remember if they can actually enter the room at all or like maybe if they wear like headphones or something they can get someone in i think like um i think they they aren't technically dead yet right they uh they're just at a point where they no longer want to live so like they uh they will just end up starving or you know dying from whatever lack How of medicine or something. the movie it's a like average length, I think. So how do they do? Just have it on loop, or yeah, they just... usually usually they'll set it up so they can put it on a loop, like okay. the person watching it. That's what happens with the first guy. Is he? Uh, the, that's the only action he takes after he's starting the movie is to rig it so that it plays on loop forever. Oh Jesus! Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Okay, so one of the members of the AFRs is called Murat. He has some sort of double agent, but might be a triple agent or maybe a quadruple agent. It's not even clear if he knows which side he's on at this point. He's meeting with a man named Hugh Steeply, a U.S. spy who works for a government organization called Unspecified Services, which is the equivalent of the CIA and the NSA. Steeply's whole thing is that he his handlers like to dress him up in ridiculous disguises. At one point before the events of the book, he's dressed as a black man. During the most of the book, during most of the book, uh, he's dressed as a huge woman. Well, uh, sorry, a huge woman. It, I think this is supposed to be funny. I'm not really sure. The disguise is always disintegrating in front of Marat, but no one else in the story ever notices that he is male. Seeply and Marat have numerous meetings throughout the story and discuss all manner of subjects, including what the differences between Americans and Quebecans are, why they, you desire what you desire, and the deadly nature of the entertainment. It is pretty interesting. This all proceeds steeply posing as a reporter for a magazine and interviewing Oren in Condensa and then infiltrating ETA to try to get an interview with Hal. Uh, you may notice the humor in this is that Oren is trying to seduce uh, a woman who is actually a man. Uh, <laughs> it's so funny. I, I can't think of anything more funny than that. Uh, another that... reason to hate Oren. <laughs> right okay <laughs> um he's not just a man he is also a spy so that's that is a bit more funny um he is he is uh so he Seeply is hoping to locate the master copy before Murat does. Murat, on the other hand, is tasked with entering Edit Halfway House and trying to talk to Joelle, hoping that she will have the answers that he is looking for. Neither of these storylines are ever resolved. Oh jeez. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Just a big fuck you, dude. Fuck you for reading this book. Wow. Okay, so let me let me answer a couple of questions that you may have at this point, and then we'll, we'll get into some more specific things that you may have questions about. Nobody really knows about the entertainment uh, or Infinite Chest. Only Joelle even knows it exists, but she doesn't know that if you, it will kill you if you watch it or that it was ever even distributed. None of the incandenzas ever hint at it or reference it beyond the fact that the late Patriarch often had Joelle star in his films. However, there is a popular online theory that says that Oren has the master copy and is secretly sending copies to his late uh, father's enemies. But I'm not super convinced by this. There's not a lot of evidence for it, uh, except for some brief kind of contextual things, like the fact that Oren is at the post office one day and that he um, uh, he hates sending mail through the post office. Like that's supposed to be evidence of something. Um, he and his father had a weird relationship where Oren was always trying to connect with him. One of the reasons why he introduced Joelle to his father was because Joelle was also interested in filming and because she was so beautiful, he thought that uh, Joe, J.O. in Condensa, his father, could use Joelle in his films, which she, he ends up doing. Um, but uh, he, J.O. in Condensa was a basically a terrible father. He never really connected with his, with his children except for Mario. Um, for some reason, he believed that Hal could not speak even which is something that ends up happening to Hal. But when he's a kid, he never. Whenever Hal speaks, uh, Jo gets disturbed and uh, claims he cannot understand what he's saying. It's oh. uh, it's really weird. Wait, isn't that what happens to him in that scene at the beginning? Yeah, so that's what happens to Hal at the end, or at the end of his story. Right, is that he he becomes that person that Jo theorizes that he is. But it's not clear if this is just a coincidence or if Jo is just insane. Um, because it, like to everyone else, Hal appears completely normal. So, uh, is he seeing the future? I don't think so. He oh, does come back as a, he's like a, yeah, you're saying he was a ghost, comes back as a, ghost a wraith, specifically a wraith, but yes, ah. a ghost. Um, but in, in the, the part of that theory is that, uh, 
Orin is that the master copy is actually hidden inside of Jo's skull, um, uh, which is also a weird thing. Which means maybe he had that in the I don't I don't know what that means. It was it was put in his skull when he was buried, along with all the other master copies of all of his work, um, and uh, Orin digs up his father's body and gets the skull and then that's what releases his um breaks the skull open i think which is what releases his soul and he becomes the wraith that's the uh that's the theory online anyway i i don't really see a lot of evidence for that there is a scene that's mentioned offhand where hal is at the graveyard of his father holding his father's skull very hamlet like this book has a lot of hamlet references uh and john don gately is there helping him dig up the body um and I think it's implied that Hal goes to the hospital at some point and meets Gately there. Um, but I'm not, that also doesn't happen in the events of the book. So this really cool scene where two of our main characters meet and then go dig up Hal's dead father's body never occurs like realistically in the book. And uh, I find it infinitely frustrating. <laughs> well, what is it called uh, when it happens off camera in a book? <laughs> off page, I guess. Off page, yeah, that's freaking hilarious that there's something important that happened that's not included in this gargantuan book. Exactly! <laughs> Thank you! That's what I've been trying to say. <laughs> yes, fucking hell. Okay, um, let me uh, let me move on to the next part. So, uh, only the AFRs in Steeply and, and Steeply's organization seem to know that the entertainment exists. There are never any survivors, so it's not like anyone can tell stories about it. But near the very end, a number of high-ranking officials from the government and various corporations are all working on a PSA to warn people about the existence of the tape. Oh, so somehow the word gets out, and it seems as if the PSA will be effective. Um, they don't. They don't say. They say there are. In, they say there are blank cartridges out there. That's the way that this thing works. Is that uh, it doesn't have a name or anything. It doesn't say Infinite Jest on the on the thing. It's a blank tape. So when somebody gets it, they they have to be curious enough to put it in and, and watch it. Um, so what the the PSA says is don't watch unlabeled tapes. Um, there are some dangerous things out there that could kill you or your family. So don't watch un uh, don't watch these tapes unless you have permission from your parents or something. Like that. You know what it is, um, and. Uh, there's, they don't, they don't show the distribution of that or whether it's effective or not, but they do a couple of focus groups in the discussion here and it seems like it's going to work. Um, okay. Of course, that's the, actually, it sounds like an effective PSA. Yeah. Uh, as opposed to. It also to... features a cartoon donkey. <laughs> in the PSA? Yes. <laughs> Why? Is it the Democrats who are doing I, I don't remember. I think it? he's supposed to look kind of dopey. My, and then the, uh, implies like the conservative reaction, which is, <laughs> it's my right to watch unmarked tapes. I think uh, it would be, but yes. <laughs> but, um. Um, no, I think he's supposed to be that he looks like, uh, he's, uh, I think he's supposed to be more versatile because they have one for kids that they talk about that he's like supposed to be really, they're trying not to be condescending. They're trying not to say, don't watch this because it's, you don't watch this, it's going to be good for you. He's trying to say, he's trying to be like appeal to their, like, I'm like you, you know, I'm just a kid. Right, I don't right. really know these things. So I like, I, and I'm worried about this thing. And then he's supposed to be, um, he's supposed to, I think he calls himself an ass in the teenage version of the tape. Nice. Uh, for the, 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 you know, that'll the get him on his side. Teens. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Well, um, just for the sake of, I mean, uh, Mr. Squishy 
like half of the story takes place in a focus group. Was there any substantial amount of time spent in a focus group? In this no, group? they just mentioned the results of the focus group oh, in this okay. conversation they have uh, between these different heads of state. You want to know something else David Foster Wallace knows a lot about? It's focus, focus groups. groups. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of things he knows a lot about. I will say he knows a lot about things. <laughs> he definitely does. And he's not willing, he will not hold back uh, if he no. knows about it. <laughs> definitely not. <laughs> So, of course, the actual master is never found. It's supposedly buried with J.O. Incan, as, as I've explained. Um, and uh, there is a kind of implication that it is eventually, that his body is dug up by Hal. Um, but it's also implied that they don't find the master when they go there. Um, so, in conclusion to that, in conclusion to that, this book is just a bunch of teasing. I don't understand the desire for some of the more pivotal and interesting stuff to happen off page, as it were. You spend a ridiculous amount of time with these characters in the world and building to some sort of conflict or climax, but it never happens. Pay it off, man. Why do this? Um, so here is an answer, apparently, from the man himself. Someone once asked him, Is there no ending to Infinite Book because there couldn't be? Or did you just get tired of writing it? To which DFW responds, There is an ending as far as I'm concerned. Certain kind of parallel lines are supposed to start converging in such a way that an end can be projected by the reader somewhere beyond the right frame. If no such convergence or projection occurred to you, then the books failed for you. So, first of all, I have no evidence that he actually said this or not. This, I think, happened in some sort of like... Uh, chat room AMA type thing in 1996. I'm pretty but, sure I listened to this. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Um, because I, I found a bunch of links that were all broken, and everyone who's referenced this on their blogs don't have links to the original source. So I don't really know if this is a real thing or not. It sounds like something he would say. Um, I mean, it, this may have been a different specific time he answered this way, but I do remember him being part of a radio call-in show okay. about Infinite Jess right after we'd written the book. And somebody brought this up uh that they, there was really no ending and i do specifically remember him saying that the book failed for you which yes. i thought was super pretentious that's like oh you just uh you know well, you yeah. didn't read it right first of all um parallel lines don't converge that's the definition of parallel lines got him uh, <laughs> the, second of all i will call your bluff uh wallace this book did fail for me because i didn't get this i it did not converge for me it was not obvious and maybe that's because i live in a stupider age where things i need things things spelled out to me or maybe it's just because i when i want to read something i want it to be entertaining and i want it to to uh to coalesce around something and give me a satisfying ending. And the fact that you didn't do that and wasted my time for 188 pages and 388 endnotes just makes me more angry. And I hope that no one else reads your dumb book. Anyway. Wow. More like <laughs> infinite rage. <laughs> maybe that's maybe that's a little too harsh. Anyway. Um, it's not like he doesn't want to show action. Don Gately fighting the Canadians is an exciting, intense scene, and it's pivotal to Gately's story. It completely changes his circumstance and pits him against his convictions. Same with Eschaton. That is chaotic and hilarious, uh, and it's pivotal. There, but the scene after that where Hal and Pemulus get reprimanded and Pemulus convinces the drug testing guy to give him 30 days, that happens off page two. It makes no sense to me. Why not resolve it? Why make it so damn long and leave it so open-ended? And you don't even know why Hal is in the state he is. Not really. You can only guess. And I hate that. Okay. You got, do you have any questions about plot? 
is the like uh, the movie because th- what interests me the most about Infinite Jest is the story of the movie. And yes. um, is that ever resolved in any way? Like, I guess, how does it progress from the this terrorist group trying to use it to, I don't know, beyond that? So Steve Blee interviews Joelle, and she tells him that it's likely, if they're looking for the master, that it's buried with J.O. and Condensa. However, she also says that nobody knows where he's buried because he's buried in the Great Concavity. So um, his his burial site has been completely lost and completely overrun by whatever oh that's the toxic zone right 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 so it's but it it's also pretty explicit that Hal does find the burial site uh at at some point in between the two like that in the big in the big concavity in the book which is between the last uh part of the last scene in the book and the last scene chronologically in the book uh which is you know spans a couple months or something sometime in that in that period he does dig up his body and and does find it however it's not clear if he finds the tape or not so it's possible that somebody else has it but it's not at at the end of the book you neither unspecified services the steeply or marat's afrs have the master copy they're still looking for it and interviewing people to find out where it is okay um, they may be circling on maybe where some possibilities but they don't quite have it Orin, on the other hand does get captured by the afrs again it's probably because they were trying to interview close relatives of uh, jo and condensa to find out what they knew about the entertainment um he is uh he has a, a cockroach problem in his uh, in his uh, apartment and they're so they're really big they're like giant black cockroaches that resist being squished so uh-huh. instead he puts he puts tumblers on top of them like upside down glasses and lets them uh uh suffocate which is what happens to him at the end of the book they put him in a giant glass tumbler and force him to suffocate um although the the uh the uh online theory says that he negotiated his way out of that by giving them the master copy but i at this point like i, I listen back to that first scene again and how doesn't reference his brother but it doesn't reference whether his brother is dead or not so it's possible how doesn't know or it's possible that Hal, that Orin gets away or that he uh is dead and how just doesn't reference it in this moment so uh, um it, again it's not clear exactly what it is but the it, the the walls are closing in, which is, again, why this is so frustrating for me, because I want to know where they get to, who gets the entertainment, if anyone, um, and what happens to it next. This PSA is supposed to, of course, you know, mitigate some of that. And I think and I do believe it will be effective, but that doesn't mean that this thing won't exist in some small way forever. Yeah, I mean, I feel like uh, this movie has the potential to be a world ending event, uh, which sure. is uh, like kind of an s- exciting premise. Um, yeah, um, yeah, not uh, probably not, but um, but it, it could have been used more interestingly. It would, have been, it would have been cool to have a big climax where there's some mass viewing of this entertainment, right? right. Just I, I think a movie it's screen or something. Halloween four or five, or which it's one of the ones that doesn't actually have um, what's his name, uh, Jason, Mike, or no, Michael Mike Myers. Myers. Um, it, it, it's like this one where it's all about the masks and they're giving away these masks. But then if you wear the masks and you watch this thing, the mask becomes real and then you turn into right. a ghoul or a monster, um, which is it was an interesting premise. Um, but I guess, yeah, I mean, that's totally a different story. Another thing right, that just crossed my That's what I'm looking for, though, is some sort of is something like that where yeah. like they the AFRs are building to some sort of great terrorist attack. Right. 
and it's horrifying in so many reasons. And it's like, and it's a metaphor for our mass consumption and how like when we uh, experiencing something together can all influence a bunch of people in the same way and make them all think that something is true when it's not true. You know, there's a lot to be said about that, but of course, none of that happens. Well, I, I also kind of expected the great, the entertainment to be somehow uh like irresistible for people who want to make money where it's like oh my gosh like this is gonna kill people if they watch it but it's like who's gonna resist watching the greatest thing ever like we hmm. there's so much but but obviously it doesn't that's sense. actually yeah. that's actually a really interesting point there is this whole thing about um advertisements which i'll get to in a minute mm-hmm. um that it, it follows like a similar path although kind of in the opposite direction um yeah because it, it, the whole thing is like I think I think there is something to that of like it has some sort of utility where and like uh, something that is forbidden to watch obviously is going to garner a lot of attention, but it never reaches that state. It never it's not like there are rumors of this tape that could kill you. You know, people just are like, I have all these tapes. One of them is blank. Let's just see what it is. You know, there's never a hint that. Oh, this might be that thing I heard about, or something right, like that. right. It's only it's these phenomenon. It's only it. these like powerful political groups that even have a semblance of that it exists at all. Okay. Um, another question: You told me that Joel wears a veil, which is something that people who are deformed wear, who belong to that certain group. Is she deformed, or is she hiding her impossible beauty? So at first, I thought it was this, the latter that she was hiding her impossible beauty because a lot of her, the rest of her body is impossibly beautiful, and Gately notices that like her skin is really clear and that her arms are really elegant and her legs are, are really nice or whatever. Um, nothing about her ass, but I'm sure that's implied. Um, the, uh, <laughs> um, but she there so. After he, there's this this scene that she she explains. I think she might even explain it to Gately, um, where she goes to dinner with uh, her family and brings Orin over. And during that dinner, her father admits that he's been sexually um, attracted to her since she reached puberty. Um, and uh, her mother uh, realizes, like. Like admits that she has known that he has had this fascination, and that's why she, she's been she has been neglected ever since Joel has come of age. And they go they all go down to the basement for some reason, and Joel's mother throws acid at uh, the um, the father, and Joel gets caught in the crossfire, and she gets acid on her face, basically uh, deforming her. Wow. Yeah. Really fucked up. Yeah. <laughs> Not um, a pleasant scene. Definitely. Um, one more question. Yeah. Can we take a break? Yes. <laughs> All right, we're going to take water. a quick break, but stick around because when you come back, we're going to be talking themes, predictions, and more things that annoy Joey. Uh, we'll be right back. Benjamin here from the future. This episode ended up being really long, which should surprise absolutely no one considering the topic at hand. And the part before we took this break and after the break ended up being of similar length, so we decided to make this into a two-part episode. So this was part one, and if you want, you can hear the rest of our conversation about Infinite Jest and David Foster Wallace on next week's episode, which will be Infinite Jest Part 2. 
And if you're wondering where you can find that episode, well, you can subscribe to us on Spotify or iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And wherever that is, please leave us a review. It really helps us grow and reach a larger audience. You can contact us on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at AffableChat on all three or send us an email affablechat at gmail.com check us out on youtube where we have video clips from the stream and sometimes we post episodes of the podcast and sometimes we make videos that aren't even about movies so check that out just search youtube or rather just search affable chat on youtube also affable chat is live tuesday nights at 7 p.m eastern time that's twitch.tv slash affable chat that's gonna do it for this episode for affable chat i'm benjamin thanks for listening